widening military conflicts around the world have got military planners in the United States on edge. For some perspective on resiliency, innovation, and artificial intelligence in the defense domain, at a recent conference I caught up with former DOD and Navy Chief Information Officer and Army veteran Terry Halverson, now with IBM. I started with a question about how agility might get the U.S. through all of this. There are breakouts of conflict now on two major fronts in the world, one in the Middle East, one in Ukraine, and they're not isolated, are they? And what do you think the agility needs to be in the United States to be able to deal with these in a way that they don't threaten us or that we can resolve them in a way that is positive for our influence in the world? Tom, that's a great question. And I would add to while it's not maybe at the same level as Ukraine and what's going on in the Middle East, but we've got a fairly intense situation in China, especially in the sea area there. So I think this is a a time where we really have to start being able to show agility. And, And maybe in the most important area, we've got to be able to show agility in the ability to exchange information and data with our allies. I mean, as you just said, these are not isolated events. So if we can keep the data exchange between the allies and take the things that are common data or things that are going to be important across all of these areas at the same time, get it to them at what I'll call mission speed or at commander speed, it gives the U.S. and the allies a big advantage in Whatever operations we want to conduct, even if they're short of war, it gives us that intelligent decision advantage. But haven't we always done that? I mean, what's holding us back here? I would say we've always done it. Generally, we've done it pretty well when it got to a war situation. I think today the volume of data we need to move, the number of changing allies, and the incredible pace of technology is challenging our systems. It's challenging our acquisition system. It's challenging somewhat our decision systems, even inside DOD. And I would say right now it's certainly challenging, and this is not a political statement about either side. It's just we're in a challenging political situation to be able to get all of the decisions we need on time. Yeah, I guess getting a 45 or whatever it was day continuing resolution counts as good political backing these days. And we won't go there too much here. Right. But I mean, it does. I mean, I think, again, not a political statement, but I do think when you have that. And unfortunately, the department has had to get used to dealing with continuing resolutions, but it's gotten worse and worse. So it just impacts the entire decision-making cycle. So it slows up the budget. It slows up decisions. You compound that with some of the acquisition issues that we face, and it really becomes a super challenge of can we keep the right pace in both acquiring and fielding these new systems that will continue to give us and our allies decision advantage. And, And I would say the thing that I see in the Defense Department today, and I think it is the key, and I see this in the Defense Department's uh, from all our allies, is no one's talking without saying the word allied. I mean, we just got back from vacation in Italy. But while I was there, I ran into some of our Italian counterparts, but German counterparts, NATO counterparts, all of them are talking, my gosh, the importance of the allies being able to just get decision quality data in command or mission time across the seams. And if we can do that and continue to accelerate that, it really will give us a really big advantage. And there's a couple of really big commissions going on right now. There was just the interim report on acquisition reform for the DOD, and they said this is what we're going to suggest, but we're not formally suggesting it yet, aimed at that whole idea of getting 
acquisition up to the decision of what is needed for decision-making. What's your hope there? (laughs) Two things. I think they're on the right track. The thing I would say is what we may need is some more accelerated training. We've got a lot of new contract officers and a lot of retirements, a lot of new contracting officers in DOD, a lot of them in other agencies, but we'll limit this to DOD. They need to understand all of the authorities that they have. One of the things that I do see is some of the new acquisition officers maybe don't understand every authority that they have that could help accelerate what they're doing. And so that tends to slow some things down. On the other hand, I think industry also needs to be more specific in this is what we can do. This is the set of products that can deliver a solution. And it's going to mean that industry has got to partner more, too. Uh, I'm very proud of IBM right now. We're really reaching out hard to make sure that we're partnering and we're partnering with companies that can bring the right solutions. And I think that's where industry has to step up. It's delivering a solution. And we're going to talk about the key areas. AI is a key area we need to get solutions on because they need to be solutions that are not only mission speed, capable, but they also have to be ethical, which my definition says when it's time to pull a trigger, we've got to have a man in the loop. That's what we have to keep doing. Yeah, the idea of autonomy extends to that point, but Correct. only to that point. Yeah. Which means that you have to have a pretty careful understanding and application of the way you do your AI. I'm going to say this, um, and I think this is where, you know, IBM's got great technology, but what I will say, and, and I mean this somebody listening, the process of getting there, as you just said, is really critical. No matter whose AI you're using, it's that process. Making sure that the data you're using has auditability and is authentic. Because just like AI can be a great tool for the good, it can help us produce all kinds of fake data, too. So the thing that we have stressed at, at IBM and what we have gotten great responses from, particularly from the Army leadership, is the fact that we show an auditable, authentic system that can verify the data. Uh, and I think anybody doing that right now, that's got to be an emphasis point. And to some extent, you've got to be able to willing to teach some of that to the defense systems and their contractors, regardless of what, what funding is bothered. You've got to teach that to them so they know how to do that, and they'll, they'll do the best buys possible. And what is IBM peddling at the Army show? It is really about data, and that means it's about how AI can help them improve decision, be a force multiplier. It's about automation. One of the things that we do know, and let's take cybersecurity for an example, we're not going to have enough cybersecurity people. It's just not going to happen. So one of the ways you fix that is you've got to have a solution that has AI, automation, and data management that becomes a force multiplier so that those security analysts are looking at a much greater defined set of data that lets them get to decisions quicker on mission time. And that's where we really have to keep focusing. Yeah, the challenge in AI and in the greater point of decision-making is not big data anymore. It's the correct data, and that could be small data. Well, I'm going to say it's two things. It's still big data because the volume of data keeps, you know, we threw out Moore's Law a long time ago. <laughs> it keeps growing and growing and growing. And then you just added the great comment, not only is it growing and growing and growing, fake data is growing probably even faster than that. So how do you make sure you've got the right data, you're getting through the big volumes of data, and you're triaging that data, so you're pulling out what is the most optimum, important data to the right level of command. That's the other thing, and I will give the Army credit. I think they've gotten really good at saying, you know what, not everybody needs every piece of data. A battalion has this limited sphere. They need this data. A division needs this data. A corps needs this data. In fact, 
when we get that data to commanders at the right level, let them command. And I really applaud the Army for stepping up on that right now. Terry Halverson is former Defense Department Chief Information Officer, now Vice President for Federal Client Development at IBM. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.